girl Natasha back again with another special guest for our YBF politics vertical and guys this is like such um just an exciting situation for me and hopefully for him too um and we have just a really special guest that is that deserves a national platform that deserves to speak to not only his future constituents but to the whole entire country and I think that this person is such a fabulous person to put on a pedestal and to learn from whether he's in office or not, but we hope he is. This is a candidate for US Congress that you all need to know, like yesterday, like stat, okay? So please welcome, and by the way, today is your primary, so figure it out, figure out how to get your ass to the polls, okay? This is running first thing in the morning, so you all know to go down there and vote. Okay, so welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cameron Webb. Hello. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Hello. Dr. Webb is running for U.S. Congress in Virginia, and it it's a semi-uphill battle, but not really because he's killing it right now, and we're going to get into <laughs> why his race is so, so important. Welcome to the podcast. Like I said, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and just, just have a nice conversation about everything we've got going on here in Virginia. Yes, yes. And fun fact, I used to live in Virginia for a few years after I dropped out of law school um, and just lived in Virginia while I was working on the Hill um, just, to, ah. just to be there. So I was there for a few years, just FYI. Nice, Not in your nice. district, but yeah. <laughs> Even still, touched by Virginia it means you're good with me. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, you are running for um, the 5th Congressional District in Virginia. You are not only a doctor, but also you hold a JD. So you have a dual um, expertise, which is, I don't know if you all realize this, but this is extremely rare. Um, and this means he's, I don't even want to say the word smart, like he's pretty much a genius. So I want to talk about your background, what led to a dual degree person like you, um, your family life, your 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 passions, your everything that led up to why you're sitting in this seat now attempting to become the next congressman from, from Virginia. Tell me what led to you to be here. I mean, for me, it starts with just a passion for service. That's what led me to want to be a doctor since I was five years old. So, uh, you know, I was really passionate about the idea of serving my community as a doctor. And I was always into science and my grandmother was a nurse. And so those things kind of added up. But when I got to college, I went to the University of Virginia uh, very first class, uh, I learned about <clears throat> just the incredible disparities in healthcare. How you know being being black tended to increase your risk of seemingly everything: diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, strokes, HIV/AIDS. You know, not getting immunizations, infant mortality. The list goes on and on. And it just struck me as a uh, civil rights issue, as a social justice issue. And so, knowing I wanted to practice medicine, I was like, "Listen, I need to have a skill set to fight the injustice that exists in healthcare." And so that's where I decided, hey, I'm going to put these two things together. I'm going to, you know, the law has always been a tool to fight for justice. And so decided to, to also do law school as well. And, um, and that's kind of how that path started. And so for me, it was always this idea of being passionate about service, and being passionate about justice. And the way those two things come together is, is these two degrees. And you can't give me too much credit for, for being smart because, uh, because you haven't seen how much debt I'm in from school. So, I mean, I think that <laughs> at the end of the day. Oh, we'll get to that. I, 
we'll get to that. But it's just, I mean, it, it was more about, this was about passion. It was about making sure that I had the skill set to do what I feel like God put me on this earth to do. Right, right. Um, I love that. And I mean, I, I can't even fathom or wrap my head around doing, I mean, that's seven years minimum of school yeah. plus your residency and any expertise and any specialty. I mean, it, I can't, like, after my first year of law school, I was like, I'm good on y'all. I'm out <laughs> this mug. Um, right. And I, I just, I, hats off to you for putting into motion when you saw an issue, putting into motion and taking action to secure that issue on both fronts. Well, I, I mean, I'm nothing if not tenacious and action oriented. It's just kind of how I'm wired. So to me, I think a lot of people talk about problems and, uh, and I, I feel like, you know, we all have agency. We all have the ability to affect change. And it's yeah. about making sure you've got the right tools in your tool belt to affect that change. And right. so I, I just couldn't stand by and watch it. Now, that said, um, you know, that was, a, I always joke, I went to the 25th grade. I mean, that was a long time in school. <laughs> and so, you know, in all that time, I think you just really realize that, you know, you're building something, you're, you're, you're arming yourself for the battles to come. And that's really what it was all about. Every day, that was how, what I kept kind of top of mind, was like, I'm preparing myself for the arguments, for the advocacy, for the battles uh, in days to come. And so um, so that's kind of how I got through it, but, uh, but it was right. definitely, and also, I mean, family. Listen, you can't, you can't do stuff like that without right. having a lot of support. Wow. And my wife is kind of chiefly among those. I mean, she, right. she uh, did not bat an eyelash when I was like, I want to do med school and law school. Right. And she was like, Gotcha. <laughs> well, let's before we even get into policy and change making, your wife is also a physician um, and she also holds an MBA. And I want to hear about, first of all, how did y'all meet? So on behalf of all women out here and men, get your notepads right now, because we're trying to figure out, you know, when we're trying to find that right person for us. I mean, this is beyond, this is beyond perfection. How do we meet our own doctor, lawyer, um, social activist, and everything else? How do we do it ourselves? How did y'all well, meet? Yeah, I was going to say, the better question is, how did I meet my own, you know, yeah. doctor, MBA? You know, so um, I hate to hate to spoil it, but I mean, ours was one of those uh, we met in college. You know, she was, we were in the same chemistry class, very first semester of college. Okay. It was the intro to chemistry. We were both pre-med. And uh, during, during all the exams we took, she would always walk up to the front of the class and ask the, the professor. She always had some kind of question about something. Yeah. She's very meticulous. And so I would always see her walking up there. I was like, that girl's cute. I have to talk to her one day. And I'm a, I'm a sneakerhead. I'm an absolute sneakerhead. So to me, uh, on, it was September 17th, 2001. The huh. New Jordans came out. I went and copped them. And then on Monday, we came back to class. And I had the Jordans on. And she had the same Jordans on. And I was like, huh, nice. I was like, nice shoes. And she was like, Oh, thanks. And then she looked at my feet and she's like, oh, you're corny. And then from there, I was uh, stuck in the friend zone for about two years, but I fought my way out. And, uh, and yeah, the rest, is, the rest is, is history. So, so yes, I'm still corny. I always say when people are like, how did you all meet? I'm like, we just had chemistry. And that's yeah. actually the truth. And I think that, um, you know, from there, uh, you know, we oh, built a friendship. Cute. And then from there, just uh, we've been each other's partner and, and supporter since then. So it's been, we've been together, oh, I love that. together for 19 19- yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, you said you were married for how long? I said we've been together for 19 years. Oh, okay. We've been married for 11. <laughs> right. I'm like, wait a minute now. Okay. Hold up. Hold that up. is beautiful. And hats off to you guys. I mean, and you have children, ch- two kids? 
Two kids, yeah. Two kids. Um, and he's doing all of this, guys. So men out there talking about you don't have time to return a text. <laughs> Dr. Cameron Webb has all the time for what is oh, important, okay? All right. Dr. Leanne Webb would snatch me up if I didn't return to that text. So I, <laughs> exactly. I'm well trained. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so what I want to know, um, we talk a lot about, and you mentioned it as well, about um, disparities in healthcare. And if you are elected, you would become the first black physician in Congress with voting power. Um, right. The Congresswoman from Virgin Islands also was a physician, but she, uh, unfortunately, they don't have power to vote. Um, this is a huge deal. And yes, there are other physicians, I, I know at least one um, in Congress, um, but having a black physician front and center speaking for the people on the House floor is, I mean, that's something that we can't just let slip through our fingers. And there's many reasons why. How are you going to put legislative power behind what your goals are, what you, what your pet projects are, everything that you see in this in the healthcare system where it comes to disparities, especially in race, what are you going to actually do to address that? Well, so I mean, the two parts to your question is the the legislative power part, and then there's the what are you actually going to achieve? So on the legislative power front, I've been building this this skill set my entire career for the last 15 years. I've been in this health disparities, health equity space on the leading edge. I've been doing it in terms of research, in terms of advocacy, in terms of organizational leadership, and, uh, and in, in the policy space as well, even when I worked in the White House. So all of those are things that are, that are experiences that I've had that prime me for this moment. And so the legislative power piece really comes from the relationships I have. And so, you know, over the course of this campaign, you know, Senator Kamala Harris endorsed us last week, or I guess like a week and a half ago now, we have, uh, you know, Representative John Lewis from Georgia endorsed us. Uh, Representative Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, the House Democratic Caucus Chair, uh, Hakeem Jeffries endorsed our campaign. We've got, and then we got Representative Ayanna Presley from Boston. So, so we've got leadership that spans the political spectrum. We've got leadership that spans race and ethnicity. We've got Jerry McNerney in California, um, Sharice Davids in Kansas, so many different members of Congress. And people ask, how do you get all these uh, endorsements from members of Congress? I tell them the answer is the same every time. What they say is, we need your leadership and your perspective in the House helping to make some of these decisions. And I think that's critical because I'm not walking in the door just as some backbench freshman uh, member of the House. What I'm doing is I'm walking in and people are looking to me for my expertise, for my leadership on issues of healthcare. Um, now, on the health disparities front, um, you know, prior to 2009, my health disparities work was always just studying disparities and saying, hey, you know, pointing out HIV AIDS, we need to fix that. Here are some things we can do. In 2009, when Obama was president, when we were working on what became the Affordable Care Act, that's when it really clicked for me that all policy, all health policy has the potential to end disparities if we design it equitably, right? We, we keep siloing off our policy and we say like, oh yeah, well, you know, we'll have this, this black legislation, this is the minority health legislation right here Right. And then we're going to have the, the main legislation over here. No, no, no. no. All policy oh, has yeah. to work. It all has to work together. And so that's something that really clicked. And I was like, you know what? I want to be a part of designing the entire system that helps serve all of us equitably. So it's the next piece. And so the question is, fast forward now 10 years later, 10 years after the ACA, um, you know, four years after I worked in the White House for President Obama, how do we take those next steps? Because we still have 30 million Americans who don't have insurance, uh, disproportionately the black and brown. And so what do we do? And I think that, you know, we are, 
we are in a moment in history where there's a robust conversation around Medicare for all, and there's a robust conversation around uh, you know, a public option. The fact of the matter is we need action immediately, like day one, we need to get 30 million people covered and then add to that because COVID hurt so many people, so many people lost, lost insurance. And so to me, what I say is, you know, that public health insurance option, we can get that in on day one. Like we can get that in that, that very short term in Congress to get everybody covered. We've got to get everybody covered. That's our most, that's our most critical need in terms of, uh, of addressing well, what do you this. What you say case. to the people, especially people of color, um, that say, that's going to raise my insurance price. It's the same. It's yeah. the same argument that we've been having, even right. when Obama proposed this. What What do you say to those people who don't trust doctors, who don't right. like that their premiums are increasing? What do we say to convince them? Well, I, I think that we start with you know there's two things on the you know I don't trust this is going to raise my premiums. What I always say is that the public option should be subsidized so that nobody pays more than 8.5% of their income on their insurance. There's okay. precedent for that. On the, on the ACA exchanges, the Obamacare exchanges, they're also subsidized to a certain point. And so it helps us to make, you know, we're following a precedent, we're building on a precedent, we're just extending it to more people. Because in the, under the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, if you made more than 400% of the federal poverty line, you got no subsidy, zero, right? Mm -hmm. So if you make 399%, you get subsidy, then it just falls off a cliff. And that was one of the big challenges. That's why people were facing incredible bills. And so, yes, we, we start off by indexing it to your income and subsidizing from there. The other thing is just keeping, and so that, that makes it so that it's affordable no matter who you are. The thing is, for me, this is all a path toward a truly equitable injustice. When I say universal health coverage, right, that means everybody, everyone needs everyone. And I, you know, I just know from my experience in health policy, you can't snap your fingers and make that happen, but you can build thoughtfully. I loved the way Elizabeth Warren approached this in her presidential campaign, because she was just like, listen, that is absolutely where we're headed. But the transition, that next step is we create a plan that everybody can have access to, and we build upon that. And then within two, three years, you're gonna move people toward this public option. Now, just to get a little wonky really quickly, what I'll say is that you do have to make sure that you're changing other pieces at the same time so that that public plan can survive and thrive. So that means to me, we have to break that connection between employment and health insurance. You shouldn't be getting your health insurance through your job. That's from World War II. That's, I call it the original sin of American healthcare. We don't, we don't need that dynamic. Now you can have employers who help, so they'll, they'll pay you uh, so that you can get whatever insurance you want, but that allows people to make their own decisions. Exactly. So that's the first thing, break employment and health insurance. The second thing is, I think private insurance should be a nonprofit endeavor. You know, I don't think that people should be aiming to make a profit off of private insurance. That's going to change the, the way. And yes, nonprofits do make a profit, but it goes back into the product, back right? And so I think that's going that's to be really important. The last piece is we have to have payment reform. So right now there's a perverse incentive in healthcare fee-for-service, you do more things, you get paid more money. It has to be about achieving outcomes. So you achieve the goal outcome at the lowest cost possible, efficiency and outcomes, and that's how we get paid. And I think when you put those three things together, what it does is it levels the playing field between this new public option and private insurance. So you don't just have all healthy, wealthy people going to private insurance, low-income people going to public insurance. No, we've changed the paradigm. And it was funny because I was doing an interview a couple weeks back and, um, and the reporter was like, so this doesn't sound like any plan that, that I've seen out there right now. And I was like, yeah, that's right. It's Cameron care. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I was like, but I was like, I'm joking. But the, the fact of the matter is I'm not beholden to anybody else's plan. I'm bringing deep right. expertise on this. I'm like, right. there's, there's a better way forward right. and that's what we're working to build. And so that's exactly um, what we want from someone like you not to come in and keep things status quo. 
Right, right. And I, and I think that it, it uh, we, we always have to acknowledge, I'm a consensus builder by nature because I'm the third of six kids, right? So I'm used to having to, having to build consensus, yeah. but I recognize that, you know, you, you do have to pull some people along and mm-hmm. you have to push some people forward. There's, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of that. That is, that's just politics, yeah. right? And I yeah. think there are very few instances in our history where there's something that was wildly popular to some Americans and wildly uh, opposed by other Americans. And we just said, let's do it. Right, because the political pendulum, the way that it swings, there's too much at risk with healthcare. And I'm, I would never, I would never dismiss the idea of Medicare for all. I think that without people lifting that conversation and saying, "Hey, this is what we want and what we need," we wouldn't be having a real conversation about health reform right now. So right. I'm like, "Hey, yeah, you know, keep pushing, keep talking." For me, Absolutely. the strategic steps are going to be. Let's get everybody covered next. Let's work on you know, what private insurance actually looks like in America insofar as it still exists. And then let's build from there. Let's focus on equity along the way. That way we, nobody falls through the cracks. And I think right. that's a really important So piece. that you brought up was one, businesses being now giving what I call it is a bonus in my company, because this is what I do with my employees, a bonus for them to make their own decisions um, with how they want to handle healthcare. You give them whatever the national average is, or even if you know specifically where they live and where they're going to live for a while, what what the average is for that state, what the insurance will cost, um, and you give them that and let them make their choices. I 100% agree with that. Um, the issue is I am a business owner and this goes into another issue that I want to bring up with you. I am a business owner. I am a black woman. I am someone who um, has done this for 15 years and it has not gotten easier trying to figure out the intricacies of things like health insurance for your employees. Right. Um, there's, you know, group packages and group um, benefits and things like that. I reach because I'm like, this is on my oh. bookshelf. <laughs> He's got a book this for is that. A book that, I, that, I, that I, I'm, it's like, it's like, it's not, I didn't write it, but it's just, it's talking about exactly what you're describing, right? Yeah. Nobody wants you to have to make that decision, yeah. to have to keep track of what's going on with private insurance. It's and if, so you look at the, if you look at the trends, the cost of private insurance just over the last decade has been rising so incredibly for employers. The employer share continues to rise. The, the employee share continues to rise. So, you know, what we call that defined contribution um, from employers, what it is is you'd say, I'm giving X amount of money per year to as part of a benefit uh, that has exactly. you know, preferential tax, treat, tax treatment to my employees so they can make their healthcare decisions. Yeah. But I don't have to be in the bu- business of working with Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield right. or any of that. I'm in the business of just working with my employee. I think it helps make it more predictable, your overhead. Yes. You don't have, employers don't have to make that decision anymore about if you have an, an older um, applicant for a job who's possibly has some chronic medical condition and you're a smaller mm-hmm. employer, you have to make this decision of well, what's this going to do to our insurance? Yep. We want to take that off the table, especially in this world, you know, post-COVID when so many small businesses are just struggling to survive. Right. It's just like, we've got to take that off the table off for them the and we have that. to say, Hey, look, they can access the public plan. That's right. fine. It's, you know, that's, that's why exactly. this is so important for business owners, which was going into my next question for you. Um, black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs and have been for the last five years straight. And we're never helped out. We're never bailed out. We're never giving right. anything or no matter how much we earn it. So when it comes to things like this, this is almost like 
yeah, you, you would know about it. You would know about that you can, instead of signing up for group insurance and trying to figure out that whole ridiculous healthcare situation for your employees as a small business owner, there is an option to do it where you just give them a stipend of sorts. Things like that, as simple as it sounds, it took me years to figure out. So what I wanted to know from you is, what are you going to do to help with specifically Black women in business, but small business owners who are just struggling to do the day-to-day, -day. they're trying to work in their business as well as outside of their business, but it it just feels like the system is against you from the SBA government loans that don't want to be lended to you and the bank's not taking you serious to um, realtors and, and sell, um, sellers not taking you seriously as a business owner because of how you look, to be honest. What are you going to do to help out when it comes to the issues small businesses face? Well, on the short term with COVID, I think there's a lot of work to do to make sure that those dollars, that they're kind of bailing folks out as you've referenced, those dollars are going to minority-owned and women-owned businesses. Because we know historically, if you look, uh, there's just less, there are fewer relationships with banks, fewer lending relationships to make it easier to get some of those loans and grants. Uh, we need to have a moratorium on some of the collections because listen, we need these businesses to survive their engines of our local economy. So, so I think that it's, you know, we have to be mindful of the fact we need small businesses owned by minorities and owned by women to survive and thrive in this moment in history. And so I think actually, if you look at the, um, the current House of Representatives, you look at the leadership, uh, you know, the, the financial committee in the House is led by, you know, Auntie Maxine. Like Maxine Waters is leading that. You've got pretty much every subcommittee has leadership of a, a Congressional Black Caucus member. And that's why in that third stimulus for the, um, for, you know, for COVID, you saw that third tranche of funds specifically said, here's what we're gonna do to make sure minority businesses get more of those resources. And I think that's the kind of thinking, that's the kind of language that we need. And I mean, when we talk about, um, you know, redesigning our society so it is fair for other individuals, we have to design these policies. So it's, it's not that it's equally available for you. It is more available for yes. you. And I think that that is the case. You know, SBA certainly has that ability. I think the way that we fund kind of, uh, you know, local banks or, or minority serving banks or CFIBs, that kind of thing, that's so important for us to do. And so I think that um, it, it's about being very intentional about making resources available for yes. minority owned and women owned businesses, because right. if they, if they fail, if they fall short, our communities fail. And right now we just, we can't, we can't have that happen. So, so right. it does, it is, that's what equity looks like. It looks like giving, like leaning more into the entities that need more help. Um, that and, first and tranche of funds. Oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, yeah, I, I know that making it more accessible is, is important. Um, I guess my question is also making it known that it's available. Um, it's, it's just like this disconnect. Um, yes, all these things are available for technically everyone. But again, I did this for 15 years and it still took me years to figure out how to handle the healthcare situation. And it's because of the lack of resources available to show us how to do that. There's a lot of barriers to where you even go to get information. Um, right. You know, we don't take financial classes and, and business classes in school, unfortunately, um, like high school and college and stuff like that. But how would we, how do we make sure that black women specifically, but also black people and people that don't get those traditional forms of education within their household or in their school to understand that these things are even available. It seems like it's intentionally yeah. kept away from us. Well, it does, but when I worked in the Obama White House, I'll tell you, I, I heard a very different thing um, from the leadership in the Small Business Administration. There are a lot of 
of black leaders in, in uh, SBA at that time. And just the focus on getting resources to black communities, I think it was, it was there, the dollars that were available. And this was 2016. And, um, and that certainly wasn't the case in 2017 when kind of the, the administration switched. And so I think, that, I think that as an agency, SBA has the wherewithal and has a well-worn path at this point. It's just we haven't been using it the last few years. Now, there was definitely a, a ramp up to that over the eight years of Obama. But like I said, by the time I was in the White House in 2016, you know, I could, I could certainly point you to some of the people who I worked with who just were really focused on supporting Black businesses and also on building that, that experience, that expertise on helping uh, local entrepreneurs and small business owners um, help each other. So funding that local consortium of businesses so they know how to help you navigate, help you get the resources that you need to succeed. Um, and I've seen so many programs that did that. So it's about how supported those programs are, how well-funded they are, and how durable they are. Because I think one thing, if you're a small business owner, you're never going to want to tap into some resource that you're like, it's here today under this Obama guy, but I need something that's going to last me, you know, and, and so is that going to work? And so something that's durable, something that gives people a sense of confidence that is going to continue to to support them along the way. I think that's yeah. huge. But I definitely, I definitely have seen through the SBA at the end of the Obama administration, the resources that really can help small. So small what you're businesses. saying is it's possible. It just needs yeah. to be funded properly and put as a priority. <laughs> that's right. And, and I mean, you know, listen, representation and leadership matters. And so that's at every single level. And so the administrator at, um, at uh, the SBA at that time was a Latino woman. And so I mean, think you had, you had a, a very different dynamic because there was minority and woman leadership, women of color leadership all over the SBA. And so as they're designing their programs, you know, it, it matters. And then when, when yeah. things switch over and when leadership looks overwhelmingly white and male and older, I think what happens is you lose some of that perspective. Yep. Um, that's why diversity matters so much because, you know, it does make organizations more effective. It helps eliminate your blind spots. It makes organizations more creative. And I think that's where, um, you know, even our, our federal administrative agencies can, can stand to have a lot more diversity and that'll help our communities tremendously. Right. So speaking of diversity, something that I talk about um, with friends and people on social media and our readers and just people, um, I'm a daughter of a physician as well. Um, so I grew up in a household as well as a family of doctors. And so I, I don't have a mistrust of doctors. They're all black doctors. Why would I have a mistrust for them? Um, right. But what I've noticed, especially in this COVID situation, is a lot of hesitation, a lot of um, suspicion around doctors, which has always been there, but it is completely escalated right now. Um, and I think that a lot of misinformation was created because of that. Um, and that definitely hurt people of color specifically much more in this COVID crisis than other people. Right. What do you feel can be done by you and your office once you're elected to establish that bridge between the medical field and actual doctors, not people that play doctors on TV, not Dr. Phil, who does not have an MD, I'm talking about actual doctors, establish that connection and bridge to constituents and people in America to make them feel like, hey, we are actually here for you. And what we say, I mean, it's, it's called a practice of medicine for a reason. Nothing's perfect, but we're worth listening to and you can trust them. How do you establish that bridge? Well, there's a report from 1985. So 
a long time ago, I was only two years old, but it was called the Secretary's Task Force on Black and Minority Health. The Secretary of Health and Human Services at the time was Margaret Heckler. And this was the first real report from the federal government saying that, hey, these disparities exist and they're real. And maybe the federal government has a role to play in identifying and, and looking at these. And you, you fast forward into the early 2000s, there was some minority health legislation co-sponsored by Ted Kennedy and Bill Frist. And then there was a report called Unequal Treatment in 2002. And then you go all the way up to the Affordable Care Act that had some legislation around minority health disparities. Uh, the, the key here is I think one of the roles federal government can play is that transparency role. Right? We are never going to trust and believe that people are going to treat us fairly until you got to have receipts. You got to show me what it looks like. And one of the things the ACA did is it said, hey, we need more data on racial and ethnic disparities. Think about COVID. At the very front end, we saw that the only people getting tested were wealthy people, were athletes. You had to have some kind of resources yeah. in order to even get tested. And so what yeah. we did is we started calling for data. We were like, show us who's getting tested. Break it down by race and ethnicity. In so many states, even like Virginia, Virginia, more than a third of the, the individuals who were tested, there was no race. Actually, I think initially it was about half. The race wasn't, wasn't uh, reported. And we were like, that's not okay. Everybody that you, that you test, you need to report their age, their, their sex or their gender and their race. And that's critical information for us and knowing how this pandemic is playing out. And what it did is it allowed us to see, hey, we're not testing black people at the same rate that we're testing white people even when they have similar or the same symptoms, that's a disparity, let's fix it. Like we've gotta be able to hold people accountable. Well, who made that decision? Who made that decision to say who would be tested and who wouldn't? Well, so doctors are the ones making that decision on the front end, like actually making that determination. But that's why the data is so important because when you, you know, speaking as, you know, somebody in the health system where we were like, hey, this is, a, these are the numbers. Yeah. You are, we are consistently making decisions to test white people more than testing black people. We got to fix that. And my wife was actually leading some of that work at UVA in terms of changing the paradigm so people didn't make that, that unconscious bias, that implicit bias decision not to test some people and to test others. So data matters. And I think the data is, you know, especially when we're talking about uh, paying hospitals for value, which I talked about earlier, not just fee for service, but for value. One of the key value elements has to be equity. It has to be that this performance achieving at this level doesn't have significant variation by race, ethnicity, gender, or socioeconomic status. Your patients are doing well, not just your wealthy white patients. And I think that those are things that the federal government consistently has been able to, to do and should be able to do. It doesn't just matter in healthcare either. The same paradigm needs to play out in education. That's the reason why we have such educational inequity in our society. Mm -hmm. but, um, but you're absolutely right. That mistrust is a big deal. Um, we don't want the federal government practicing medicine. We don't. We don't want the, but what we do Especially want. Especially not the current president. Correct. That would be dangerous because he thinks that hydroxychloroquine is the cure-all for, right. um, he actually thinks bleach should be injected to cure COVID. So, I mean, nothing he says is valid when it comes to COVID. But I think that, um, you know, we don't want the federal government practicing medicine. We do want them designing kind of the rules of the game to some extent so that the game is played equitably. That's right. the key. And I think that, um, you know, to that point of trust and that point of, you know, what can we do to ensure trust? One of the big things is we just need more diversity in medicine. And, and so, you know, we only about 5.8% of physicians are black, you know, the th we're 13% of the population. So that's a huge problem. Um, but the way that we bridge that is that we make college more affordable. We allow the, we extend some of the, the loans that are available for college so that people can pursue graduate education because mm -hmm. that's a huge disparity in who has access mm -hmm. to what. 
you know, I think um, that investment in K through 12 education makes people prepared for college. So it's just, there are so many things that we need to be able to do. We need to streamline the FAFSA process. We need to make sure that Perkins loans are available again. Like those are the kinds of things that make a huge difference uh, in, in creating equity. And we know what diversity does to a system. It makes it function better, more effectively. It has an impact, not just on our patients. Cause I don't, I don't advocate for, for, um, you know, equal representation in medicine to the population so that black doctors can take care of all the black patients. That's not the reason. It's because the impact that we have on the entire cohort of physicians by being equitably represented, um, that's what makes a difference. Because then all doctors have more cultural awareness and more cultural sensitivity and are better able to engage patients of all walks of life. And that's the key. That's the focus. And you are an internist, correct? That's right. And your wife is an emergency room physician, correct? She's a much um, cooler doctor than me, yeah. My mom is also emer- was an emergency <laughs> room physician as well for, for many years. So yeah. cool is one thing, but it's a lot of work, guys. So yeah. hats off to you for dealing with that. Um, what I wanted to know is from both of you guys, because you are married to a Black woman who happens to be a, a physician, but also a mother, you have a unique position of like this front row seat of what black women in particular go through in this healthcare system. And a lot of times it's ignored. Actually, most of the time it's ignored. Women's health is already a side eye all the time about how we're just put to the back of the bus and like no one really cares because it's mostly men who are scientists who are or men who are in legislative position assigning where the funds can go for what studies can be done. And nine times out of 10, it's not going to be to help out any issue that a woman is facing because a man doesn't understand and he's never faced it, whatever that issue is. But you have a front row seat and seen what those issues are. And hopefully it does make you feel like, no, this is a priority. She had this issue. She had this issue. And I saw it with my own two eyes. So I need to make that a priority to get fixed in some way, shape or form. Do you feel like that is going to come into play when you start to create and, and support legislation when you are elected and making that really, truly a priority, Black well, women's my, health particularly? Absolutely. I mean, Black women's health is the health of Black communities, if you think about it. I mean, there's no better way to invest in the health of Black communities than to invest in Black women's health. And we know that because, I mean, it, sound, it sounds kind of trite, but the, the fact of the matter is we know that Black women in so many ways are a critical part of the leadership structure of, of black households all over America, in part because of mass incarceration and removing black men from our society. That's another conversation. Right. You know, I think that some of it has to do with just the reality that, you know, black women's health is under threat constantly. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the rates of maternal mortality, at more yeah. than four times the clip of, of white women, even when you control for education or socioeconomic status, um, that's, a, that's a critical indicator right there. Um, when we look at just who is believed when they're having symptoms consistent with a heart attack? Exactly. You know, it's and like who's having anxiety. You know, I, I do a lot of research on uh, what's called allostatic load. It's just kind of the chronic stress effect of being black in America and what that does to your health. And if you think about it, um, you have a revved up, uh, you know, fight or flight response effectively just by being black in America. And yeah. and that's that you have this chronic stressor. So your blood pressure is a little bit higher. You have more cortisol in your system, which is a steroid, which you know can lead to higher glucose, so more likely diabetes. And so those things are happening in the background. And, um, and when they did the studies on allostatic load, how much of that burden people are carrying, 
black women had the highest rates of allostatic load of anybody. I believe right? it. So, I mean, and I've never met a, a black woman who's surprised when I get that stat. <laughs> Because the, the fact of the matter, and we talk about something called the superwoman syndrome, like the reality that Black women carry so much in our community. And even right now, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this from my office where I'm running for Congress. My wife has worked overnight in the emergency department the past two days. And we have childcare. My cousin helps out with the kids during the day, and she's there right now. But I know Leanne, and I know that, that she just has that mother thing yeah, where she's going to sleep for about four hours, maybe five, and then she's going to be like, my kids need to see me. And she's going to get up and then she's going to turn into super mom. And then she's going to be exhausted tonight because that's just how she saw her mom do. And that's just kind of her rhythm of I've got to be everything to everybody. And we, we talk about it a lot. And I'm just like, honey, take care of yourself. Like, yeah. what can I do to help? But the, the, you know, the fact of the matter is society is designed for me to run off and do so many things that I want to exactly. do. And when, when she does it, she's penalized societally. People are just like, but what about your kids? And like, how, how are they doing? Or, or they expect, oh, your husband's out running for Congress, so you should be sitting back, you know, taking right. care of business at home. The fact of the matter is we're a partnership. We both have to be doing all those things because otherwise the burden on her is too high. And I mean, even still, we don't get it right all the time. She, like, I, no matter how hard I try, she's just a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think the fact of the matter is when it comes to Black women's health, it has to be intentional. It has to be designed. Um, and I think that uh, to a large extent, uh, it's kind of an interesting dynamic as a black man in medicine because there are far more two to one black women in medicine compared to black men. Systematically, we're not we are not the physicians. Yeah, so two thirds of black doctors are women. Wow. <laughs> you know, but I think that uh, you know, particularly if you look at med schools these days, we just have a hard time getting black men into medicine. So it's a relatively rare thing. But there's this weird dynamic because there are fewer of us in medicine, but more of us in leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like the way that people process, you know that. There's intersectionality all the time. And the yes. way that people process my manness um, and her womanness in the setting of our blackness still means they'll give me more opportunities for leadership. So it's the privileged conversation that we always have. It's so important for black leaders in all spaces, including in medicine, to kind of lay down your privilege. Because honestly, like as a man, I can't tell you how many times I say, this isn't my area of expertise. You need to talk to you know, Dr. So-and-so or Dr. This and that, like the women leaders in our health system who actually should Look at we need a man to do this. It's ridiculous in 2020 that we still see so much yeah. of that. But we got to break down that that patriarchal. Yeah. And that's the type of person we need in Congress, guys, <laughs> <laughs> who understands and recognizes male privilege and and uses it to his advantage and say, well, go talk to this person instead, instead of acting like they know everything. Um, so I've spoken with the president of March of Dimes several times because we were talking about the black maternal death crisis and events that we can do surrounding that. Um, so I'm definitely aware of that whole situation, of course, with Serena Williams writing an article about it, about her experience giving birth and almost dying because doctors didn't listen to her. These are things that, I mean, highly resonate with my audience, obviously. So what I wanna know from you is, is there any specific legislation that you know that you want to bring up that addresses the black maternal death crisis um, or even just the black health crisis for women in general? And that could also include, um, um, maybe addressing a little bit of the suspicions that black people have about doctors, but that could also include black women being a little, not scared, but hesitant to go to the doctor um, because of the way we're treated when we do, whether it's our annual exam or even just a physical or a lot of times, a lot of things are written off, like you said, or 
it said, oh, you, you ate too much. So that's going to be the problem. Everything is a weight problem instead of no, she actually has a different problem. It's like, it just doesn't feel like even when we try to take care of ourselves, the people that are there to do so don't want to. What can you do to address that via legislation? Right. And, and some of this is going to be, we can't address some of this by legislation federally, and some of it's going to play out much more locally at individual health systems. But what we have to do is design paradigms that facilitate or that encourage, you know, more equitable delivery of care. Um, you know, I've already spoken about it, and I think that this idea of payment reform is really critical to influencing people's behaviors. And we talk about incentives a lot in medicine, like what are the incentives for you to, to practice medicine a certain way? Right now, the incentive is to do more things because you'll get paid more money. So you just do more things. You don't really care about if it's in the patient's best interest. I mean, sadly, I think most doctors do say that they care, but they still have to pay their staff. They still have to you know, get things done, so they do more. When I talk about value-based payment, that value-based reform, I think that's really the key to the first thing you're talking about. So when you talk about the, the black, uh, black woman mortality gap with uh, you know, maternal mortality gap, um, the key there is this idea of value-based payment and episodic care. Because if we say from the moment she is pregnant until you know six months postpartum, that is one episode of care. And I'm gonna pay you X amount for that X episode of care if it goes really well. And I'm gonna pay you Y amount if it's okay. And you're gonna get Z amount if it's not so good. What happens then is that for hospitals, they're like, it is our job to make sure this woman has a good healthy pregnancy with a good healthy baby right. and has a uh, safe, an effective uh, post postpartum uh, course. That is critical for us to get our full amount of money. Changed. And so their incentive has changed. And then they're just like, okay, so so what's the issue with, with black mothers? Why are more black mothers dying? That's a never event in our hospital. How can we stop it? Then they have to do that internal analysis on what are the steps along the way because they have to, they have to achieve that efficiency. And then they're like, oh, we're gonna invest more in prenatal care because that's gonna be the key. And if we're investing in that on the front end, um, really robustly, then we're going to be in a better situation. Oh, we're not listening to our patients, and that's the problem. We're missing things, and we're not listening. So it does push that kind of performance improvement conversation to hospitals with realigned incentives. You know, I think there's a you know Representative Lauren Underwood from Illinois. She's leading this work. You know, certainly. we like her. Um, she's dope. And then um, and then uh, Representative Robin Kelly from Chicago as well, really passionate about this kind of stuff. And so you know, we have some leaders within Congress who are willing to talk about this, who are willing to engage on this issue. And for me as a black physician, but also as a black man, it's important for me just to say, the sisters have it, what do you need from me? <laughs> you right. know, what do you need from me to be another right. voice to push this along? Um, but I think that, you know, again, some of the things we already talked about, more diversity in the field um, and realigning incentives, I think those are gonna be the keys to addressing a lot of what you're saying. Right. There was a, I'm looking up his name now because I don't want to just keep saying that guy, but um, mm -hmm. <laughs> there was a congressman, um, oh, I can't remember his name, obviously a white male congressman who is a physician and he made a really crazy controversial comment recently. Do you know what I'm talking about when it came to COVID? Was it? You said uh, I was going to say. I no, no, no. When it comes to COVID, he was saying, um, why are, he did, uh, you know, acknowledge that more black people are being affected by COVID-19. Um, and he said, well, why is that? Is it because black people don't wash their hands? And it was, I'm going to pull up the name. Um, he said this on the floor and it was just like, wow. Yeah, and there, and there, are, there are 16 uh, physicians in Congress. The more outspoken ones are uh, Rand Paul from Kentucky, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana. Um, there are three Democrats in the House. 
Um, but but yeah, let me know. Ah, because... it was. Um... Oh, he's a state senator. I'm sorry, state oh, senator okay. Stephen Huffman, um, out of Ohio. So what I say to this is, once you're in this position, because crazy enough, no one no one refuted it. Everybody's just sitting there looking like. And it's like, are y'all are y'all for real? Like, where is there anyone, anyone here that's an ally that can stand up? Right. It's something like this, and I would not be shocked if something like this was said on the U.S. House floor or the U.S. Senate floor. If this is said, what would you do if you're there, or even I mean, if you're not there? What would you do as a sitting congressman? It, it's what I already do. I think that we have a responsibility to be outspoken to be bold the word i use is pertinacious right you never never shy away from from speaking up i think we inhabit our spaces for a reason and we inhabit these spaces to, to lift voices and i've had this conversation a lot over the last few weeks about um black lives matter the movement for black lives and about defunding the police and i think in traditional politics people would say shy away from that language don't say anything that's going to make people upset and I'm like, well, you're not a black man running in this seat. And so from my perspective, I have a responsibility to explain to people why there is such a fever pitch interest in this language. I'm not going to shy away from the language. I'm going to validate it. And I'm going to explain to people what defund the police actually means. And I, and I say, it means whatever the heck the community wants it to mean. If it's right. in Minneapolis, it means defund and disband. If it's in Charlottesville, it means get police officers out of schools. And it means no, demilitarize the police. It means lots of different things in different places. But at the end of the day, it's valid, it's valuable, and people need to hear it because that's the movement and that's the message. And I think people are like, wow, that's bold, that's radical. And I'm like, it's my job to be in this space and to, and to speak up, right? If I'm in this space and I don't speak up, then it might as well not be me, exactly. <laughs> you know? And so I think that's one of the challenges. Um, you have to operate like you've got nothing to lose. And I, I'll tell you honestly, uh, my perspective on this is I'm like, I'm a full doctor and a, and a full lawyer. I can go back, you know, at the end of the right. day, I don't have anything to lose. Right. I've got a beautiful family. Like if, if at the end of the day, people hear me speak my truth and they decide they don't want me in service and representative service, that's cool. I'll go back to serving my community another way. Right. But this is a voice. This is a message that I think resonates loudly and clearly. Absolutely. And it's important for me to bring it. So, so you will never see me shy away from, from being bold and saying what, what needs to be said. Um, I took some heat yesterday on Juneteenth. We're just talking about how the first congressman from this district was James Madison, and he wrote the three-fifths compromise, so he thought I was three-fifths yeah. of a man. And so, and I was like, I have a hard time praising his political genius when it was so steeped in racism. And I mean, and I, it, it achieved me my first death threat, you know? So I was just like, well, okay, cool, cool, cool. But at the end of the day, if I'm not telling this history, if I'm not speaking this truth, then who's going to do it, you know? And so I think that's where you just, you have to recognize um, yeah. this, these are the moments. This is what we have to do. This yeah. is what we have to be. It's always been, it's the penalty of being black in, in leadership. You, we always have to step into this space and make a decision. Either we, we have to be double-faced. We have to yeah. well, you either have to, you either have to reinforce the status quo or mm -hmm. you have to press us toward being better. And I like the language of pressing us toward being better and saying, listen, I'm not saying this just to, to, to hate on anybody. I'm saying it because we can be better as a society. Right. And I think it's by hearing this message. So. That's so, kind of my, my stance. Before we wrap, I definitely want you to, um, I mean, you've touched on it for sure, but I definitely want you to hone in on what makes you so different than not only other Democratic um, uh, opponents in the primary, but also what makes you so 
different than what is the status quo currently in your district, which is heavily conservative um, yeah. and very much red. Um, why is it so necessary that someone like you is in there to shake it up? Will the will the people support that? Yeah. Well, the, the message that I say is my true north is equity and justice. So every policy idea that I have, every perspective is rooted in what's equitable and what's just. And what I've told people is that serves you no matter your race, color, or creed. For, for, for If you're by race or ethnicity, by sexual orientation or gender identity, by socioeconomic status, by rural status versus urban status, an idea of equity, an idea of opportunity for everybody serves us really well. And what you're hearing uh, from other individuals is just some other version of the status quo or some kind of dog whistle about returning us to a like pre-civil rights era America. And the fact of the matter is that does not serve communities broadly well, right? It just like communities have not been well served. And so for me, it's about an, an unwavering commitment to everyone having opportunities to succeed, which is quintessentially American from my perspective. Um, you know, I think we've got a unique moment in this district because of the fact that the incumbent lost his primary, because of the fact that it's an open seat now, because Virginia's already been trending blue, because we have a district that's 20% African American, so it's a it's got a large African American population. What are and a lot of those states, by the way? I mean, I'm sorry, a few of the cities that that that's included. Sure. So I'm in Charlottesville, Danville, Virginia, on the southern okay. southern end. Um, there are 21 counties and two cities. It's actually oh, wow. bigger than. The state of New Jersey, so it's a huge congressional district, but um, but it runs from just outside of D.C. all the way down to the North Carolina okay. border. So gerrymandering well, at its finest. But like I said, there's a there are a lot of black people in this district, and a lot of them haven't voted in past years because there's this sense of just uh, disenfranchisement by various mechanisms. And my thing is, I'm just like, hey, let's let's restore that notion of political power. Let's make sure people realize what their voice is doing in this space and what it can lift. Um, another thing that's important to note about me is that. You know, I, I've never really considered myself, um, you know, ideologically pure in any way. So it's not like I'm, I'm pure. I, you certainly couldn't call me a conservative. You know, I think sometimes people label me as moderate and sometimes they label me as progressive. And then they're just like, so what is he? And I'm like, I'm somebody who looks at every single situation and I say, what do we need in this space? Yeah. Right. And sometimes it sounds really progressive. Other times, yeah, every time it sounds more, more moderate. And what I say is I'm, I'm pragmatic for sure. I'm nothing but pragmatic, but I'm also progressive. I'm also like, hey, this is the direction we need to be going. Um, and, it, and I don't say that in a way to alienate people. I say that, that you're going to get the real from me every time. I'm going to look at every issue and say what's needed in this space. And so um, I think that's been, that's been nice because I think it allows me to take a fresh perspective on the needs and concerns of the district and not be tied to my ideology um, yeah. and instead be tied to the will of the people. And that's important. Right. Well, clearly you do believe that Black Lives Matter. You've been doing it pretty much all your life, it seems, yeah, um, yeah. Um, figuring out ways to make them matter even more and to make sure they're protected and served and, and heard. And that's definitely appreciated. Um, so before we wrap, is there anything that you want to say? This is this is running now on, on primary day. Is that's there right. anything you want to say? Oh, I do want to ask you, though, there was a lot of drama in, I mean, a lot of places, but definitely like Kentucky um, and South Carolina with the voting situation and voter suppression. Do you feel like, do you feel like things are going to be on the up and up today? Like, what should we prepare for? Like, do we need to yeah. come down there like, you know, and stand guard? Like what needs to happen? 
I think today's going to be okay because it's a Democratic primary. So, so you know, we're not going to, Democrats won't be, you know, suppressing. Well, well in Kentucky, they, they basically um, condensed all of the, all of the voting places into one right, place one. for 600,000 yeah. people. So, yeah. you know. And, and that's, and that's not happening here. I think because we had a pretty robust absentee ballot process, okay. um, I think kind of uh, geographically it's looked different. And so, you know, we've been engaging with folks in the last few weeks. We feel good about, about people's ability to engage and go to the polls. Um, I think that conversation is going to be a different one. You know, God willing, today goes the way that it's supposed right. to go and I win the race. November, and, then, right. and then um in November, that's really when we're gonna have this conversation yeah. about about we'll voter protection. We'll, we'll talk, talk again because it's gonna it's gonna be a big deal. <laughs> but um but yeah you're you're absolutely right. I think that folks just need to we, we do need to make sure that in every single community people know that like your right to vote is protected. You can do it either by mail beforehand, you can do early absentee, or you can vote on and now, you know, coming into November, election day is gonna be a holiday. So we're gonna make it so that all those all those approaches to suppress the vote have been addressed by our General Assembly. And so uh, that, I think that's, those are all good things as good prognostic indicators for an election here in, uh, in the fifth. Yeah, love it. Well, here's Dr. Cameron Webb, get y'all vote on today. Um, do your research if you don't trust me. <laughs> Um, and more and, than that, no, no matter where you are, right? I think there are ways to, to engage. And I think that sometimes just sharing the information, that's how our campaign yeah. really took off, was people sharing information about it. Um, and all over the country, people are seeing, hey, this is a race, this is a, an individual who might be worth supporting and investing in, and that, that matters. Um, but also look around. I mean, there are a lot of just uh, transformative, and I'll say transformative Black leaders who are pursuing uh, politics right now. And, uh, uh, and look to those and some that I, I admire deeply uh, who are all over the political spectrum but again they're in it for the people they're in it for moving us forward as a nation and so look around see who can support even five dollars twenty five dollars whatever it may be we have the ability from our respective spaces to change the course of our nation's future if we just keep our eye on who we need to support love it where can we find you where can we contact you or donate um past today if today goes well yeah my website is www doctor, that's drcameronweb.com. So D-R-C-A-M-E-R-O-N-W-E-B-B.com. Um, check it out. There's information about me, my priorities. Um, you can get a sense of, of all of our kind of supporters and, and just see what we build in here in Virginia's fifth. I'm excited. I'm hopeful today is going to go really well. I'm prayerful and, uh, and keep us lifted up. Like I said, it's, it's real out here, but at the end of the day, um, we're in it for the right reasons. We're in it to serve and serve everybody and do it in a meaningful way. So thanks for, uh, for listening. Love it. Thank you for doing this. And I'm sure um, our readers and everyone, our viewers, everyone is, re is really appreciative of this. So good luck today. And we'll be talking again soon, I'm sure. We, we will indeed. You take care. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for All listening, right. everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh my God. I was like last night, just like so stressed out reading about Kentucky. Like it's just going to be a shit show. And I just don't know. I'm like, please don't let this be everywhere, but I think it will be. Yeah, um, so actually who was in mind was Booker when I was talking at the yeah. end. I mean, he's, he's so impressive. And I think that, yeah. um, and I think his voice is so necessary. It. They know it. And that's why they're doing what they're doing now. Mitch McConnell. Yeah. actually. Right. And I think, um, I think that's what it comes down to is making sure that we, when, when folks live in New York city, that's definably blue and they're like, Oh, um, my representative is going to win support Booker, right? Like that's, that's kind of what we have to be doing exactly. is, uh, is making sure that we're, we're looking at these races that matter and that are winnable if we all pull together. That's the unique, that's the unique reality of black political power. And so, um, 
So I'm excited for it. But, uh, yeah. but thanks for doing this. Thanks for giving me a, uh, a platform to speak from. It means a lot. Thanks. And good luck to you, your wife. I'm sure she's on the front lines with everything. And it's, she is. yeah, my mom did emergency room medicine for, I mean, she's been a doctor for over 30 years, but for a majority of her career and, you know, it's a grind. It's, it's an absolute grind. I don't, I, you know, I have so much admiration for Gwen Leanne and for the work that she does. Um, it's exhausting, but I mean, she's the strongest person I know. So I think, um, you know, I think it's, you know, it'll be exciting to see what she does. I think these days, very few people stay in clinical emergency medicine for decades because it mm -hmm. just, bur you burn out so That's quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Leanne's knocking on 10 years in, in uh, emergency medicine. She started in 2012 was when she finished residency. So, um, but really it's been, I mean, it's been a while and you just realize it, it turns on you. Like, like, you know, all too well, it's a, it's a hustle. And I think even our kids, they're eight and five, but they yeah. really That's admire, yeah. yeah, yeah, they admire, you know, mommy's work. Oh. They're like, my daughter's like, dad, he's a doctor too, but mommy's an emergency doctor. Oh. <laughs> she says like, thanks again for inviting me out. This was fun. And Thank um, you. Until next time. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> right. soon. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks, bye.